Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Mark. Thank you for joining me once again, and thank you to the following people who have signed up to support the show on Patreon. That's Louis Sharp, Anne Beatty, Josh Cater, Hannah Ross, Mark Clements, Joanna Holloway, Samantha Bressington, Sally Hardstone, and Florence. Thank you to each and every one of you, and thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you want to join these people, then head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week's case has all of the components of a Midsummer Murders plotline. Forbidden love, betrayal, fraud, and of course a murder or two, maybe even more than that. And it's all set against the backdrop of the Diocese of Oxford in a pretty rural village in Buckinghamshire. Honestly, this couldn't be more like an episode of Midsummer Murders if it tried. It's a complex tale with many characters and more twists and turns than the Monaco Grand Prix circuit. So you'll need to pay attention as we head back in time to 2011 and to the quintessentially English village of Maids Morton. The village of Maids Morton, population 847, well, 845 now, more of which later, dates back to the 13th century and it gets its name from two maiden wenches. Well, it says maiden ladies on Wikipedia, but I thought wenches sounded more ye olde. Anyway, so these two maiden wenches are said to have financed the building of the parish church, St Edmund. Maids Morton is a typical English village. It's small, it's tranquil and it's green. It's a real community built around the church where generations of the same families have lived for centuries. It's not, however, the kind of place you would expect to find murder and deceit. But that's exactly what was found lurking in Maids Morton in 2017, when not one, but two suspicious deaths were brought to the attention of authorities. What follows is a love story, I suppose. A tale of two souls who found each other when they least expected it. Two men who, despite a 40-year age gap, found happiness in each other and a sense of companionship. Peter Farquhar was a part-time lecturer in poetry at Buckingham University in 2011. In his mid-sixties, he had enjoyed an illustrious career, first as an English teacher at Manchester Grammar School and then as head of English at the renowned public school Stowe. Peter had retired at the age of 58 in 2003 to write novels and to take up his part-time position at Buckingham University. Ever the academic, Peter couldn't bear the thought of a retirement filled with long, lazy days lacking any kind of purpose. His work, his love of literature, was his life. Indeed, his brother Ian said he was always destined to teach literature, fondly remembering how he had read voraciously as a child and how he had dressed in a collar, tie and sports jacket from the age of 12. In an interview with The Telegraph in 2020, Ian was quoted as saying, He was five years my senior, but he might as well have been ten. When he was in his early teens, he somehow managed to arrange it so that I needed extra lessons. He would give me homework. Teaching wasn't just a job to Peter, it was a vocation for him. A confirmed bachelor, he had never married or had children, instead he channelled all of his time and energy into mentoring the young boys he taught. 
One former pupil, the respected broadcaster Michael Crick, later commented, for some he almost became like a second father. Peter was extremely religious and he found it incredibly difficult to reconcile his sexuality with his religious beliefs and so he made a vow to remain celibate, a life devoted to his job and the church. That was his way of dealing with it and whilst he had a large circle of friends and kept in touch with a number of former pupils, deep down Peter was lonely. He lived a life devoid of intimacy and love, and so when a handsome young student enrolled on his course in 2011, he took notice. Ben Field was an English student at Buckingham University. Tall and dark with a mysterious air about him, Ben took his studies seriously and he struck up a friendship with Peter very quickly. Despite the 40-year age gap, the pair soon began socialising together and they enjoyed intimate dinners at Peter's home where they would spend hours reciting Shakespeare and talking about their shared love of literature. Ben was clever. Peter had met his match. The two were intellectual equals. And not only did they share a mutual love of literature, they also shared a mutual love of God. Ben was raised in a religious household. His father was a vicar and he himself had considered following in his footsteps, such was his devotion to the church. Surely, if ever two people were made for each other, it was Ben and Peter. There was just one problem, however. Ben wasn't gay. He had enjoyed countless relationships with girls, and he'd never been in a relationship with a man before he'd met Peter. Sure, he enjoyed Peter's company, but could he ever see him as more than just a friend? It was clear to him that Peter wanted more, After decades bereft of intimacy, filling the void with work and God, Peter had come to realise what he'd been missing all this time. The unconditional love of another man, and he was falling in love with Ben. Fortunately for Peter, after much soul-searching, Ben declared he was through with girlfriends, and he finally acknowledged his love for Peter. The two became an item and Ben moved into Peter's home and the relationship from there quickly became sexual. Peter was on cloud nine. Over the following months he sought counselling from an understanding vicar and finally he began to reconcile his sexuality with his faith. At last he could be himself, he could be happy. Peter and Ben became betrothed in a formal ceremony after which Peter wrote in his journal, it's one of the happiest moments of my life. Gone are the fears of dying alone. Peter couldn't have been happier. In Ben he had found his soulmate and with his encouragement, Peter published his first novel which he'd written in 1997 but had so far lacked the courage to release. Entitled A Wide Wide Sea, it was a coming of age story about three teenagers from Edinburgh who travelled to France and Spain on a voyage of self-discovery. Ben really was a true advocate of Peter, and the pair seemed destined to live a happy life together. But this is a true crime podcast, isn't it? So, of course, we know that they didn't live happily ever after. If I could only stop the story here with this happy ending, then I would, but there are very rarely happy endings on this show, so to speak. Okay, so things clearly went to shit at this point, but before we depress ourselves with that, let's take a moment to hear from the first of today's show sponsors. Okay, so we left the story in a good place. 
Peter and his young lover Ben were betrothed to one another, living a happy life in the idyllic Buckinghamshire village of Maids Morton. What could possibly go wrong, I hear you cry? Well, in the years that followed, pretty much everything in Peter's life, it would seem. Letting Ben into his life, into his home, would prove to be a fatal mistake. Four years after the pair met, Peter would lie dead in his home, his reputation as a respected lecturer in tatters, having been gaslighted in the extreme and smothered to death at the hands of Ben Field. For Ben, this was just a job. There was never any love, no loyalty. He was incapable of feeling or displaying either of those emotions. From their very first introduction, Ben had set out to take advantage of Peter in the cruelest way possible. What follows is a familiar story. We've seen it time and again. Helen Bailey, another author who was gaslighted and drugged before being killed by a partner. There's a similar case in Australia too, which I can't remember the names of. But again, a man gaslighted, drugged and killed his wife, nearly getting away with her murder. It happens and occasionally people get caught, but more often than not, I think they get away with it. I'm sure there are dozens of unexplained, perhaps accidental, quote-unquote, deaths recorded every year where a partner has gaslighted their spouse, drugged them, tricked them, even pushed them off a cliff, perhaps. Dozens of crimes, dozens of victims, dozens of perpetrators getting away with murder. After moving in with Peter, Ben began an evil campaign of gaslighting and he manipulated Peter into believing that he was very sick. So sick, in fact, that he must change his will immediately. Between 2014 and 2015, Ben drugged Peter on more than 50 occasions. Using a mind-bending combination of sedatives and psychoactive drugs, namely benzodiazepines such as lorazepam and the psychoactive drug BK2CB, which I've never heard of before, but is apparently a stimulant intended for research and forensic purposes, Ben managed to trick Peter into believing he was slowly losing his marbles. Friends described Peter's change in demeanour as disturbing, saying he went from coherent, intelligent scholar to dribbling, mumbling mess. Ben began to lay the groundwork for Peter's ultimate demise. He told his friends that he had descended into alcoholism, that he was drinking very heavily and that he was refusing help. Friends were concerned but powerless to intervene. Ben made sure of that. They couldn't quite believe it, but equally, it never crossed their minds that Ben might be drugging Peter. By far, the easier explanation was that Peter had indeed become an alcoholic, and that if he carried on in that way, he wouldn't have long left to live. During the two years or so that Ben was drugging Peter, he also began hiding his possessions in unusual places. For example, he hid Peter's phone in the freezer, fooling him into thinking he must have put it there, leading him to believe he was becoming absent-minded and forgetful. The drugs Ben was administering caused Peter to have powerful hallucinations, and on one occasion he became paranoid that small black insects were crawling all over him. Ben was on hand to quote-unquote comfort Peter through this paranoid delusion, firmly placing himself centre stage as carer and protector, thus throwing people off the scent of his true role as chief manipulator and abuser. 
Ben scared Peter into thinking that he might have a rare form of cancer, and he also lied to doctors about his supposed alcoholism, thus further building the narrative of a man on the edge, a man who might die at any moment. During this period, 2014 to 2015, Peter also fell down the stairs. Now, it's not known whether this was as a result of losing his balance due to the drugs he'd been given, or as a result of Ben pushing him. Either way, he didn't sustain any serious injuries, but I'm sure that that wasn't for a lack of trying on Ben's part. In the months that followed Ben and Peter's union, Peter's friends grew increasingly concerned, although they never quite managed to put two and two together. And to be fair to them, why would they? To them, Ben was a charming young man. He was working as a church warden, he was now seriously considering becoming a vicar, and Peter was raving to all and sundry about how he had been his saviour, and how Ben had been looking after him in his hour of need. Nevertheless, as I said, Peter's friends were becoming increasingly concerned for his welfare at this point. So much so, in fact, that they persuaded him to go to the hospital for a barrage of tests in order to establish whether he might have dementia. The tests came back clear, but Peter's health continued to deteriorate as 2014 turned into 2015 and things came to a head when he was admitted to a care home. Peter was just 69 years old and doctors were baffled by his ailing health. In the run-up to this disturbing turn of events, in November 2014, Peter changed his will so that Ben would inherit £15,000 upon his death, as well as his house, although there was one important clause. The will stipulated that Ben must have resided at Peter's house for at least 24 months prior to his death. And I find this really really interesting. It would later come to light that Ben only became aware of this change to Peter's will when he read his journals and rifled through his correspondence. So I think it is safe to assume that Peter made this change of his own volition. After all, he was in what he considered to be a serious relationship and of course if he died he would want Ben to be looked after, financially at least. But what I find really interesting is that Peter put this clause in the will stipulating that Ben would not inherit his home unless he had lived there for at least two years, which he'd not done by this point. Did Peter suspect something when he changed his will in November 2014? Is that why he put the clause in? Deep down on some subconscious level, did he think that Ben may have been plotting to kill him? Was this clause his insurance? a way of serving his revenge from beyond the grave by effectively disinheriting Ben from his will. I think it's an interesting hypothesis. Of course, I might be wrong, but, well, that's doubtful, isn't it? Whatever the case, it was purely academic in the end. In September 2015, Peter changed his will once again, and this time, I'm convinced it was at the behest of Ben because this later draft saw the removal of the two-year clause and also an increase to the amount of cash Ben would receive upon Peter's death. And of course this also meant there was no need to wait now. Ben was free to expedite his ultimate plan of ending Peter's life for financial gain. So as I said, Peter was admitted into a care home in early October 2015. And unsurprisingly, without Ben drugging him and, well, just generally fucking with him constantly, he got better. Peter recovered from the mystery illness that had been plaguing him for months, and he was once again back to his former self. 
He was feeling positive about the future, and for the first time in months he felt like the fog had finally cleared and he could think properly. Gone was the dribbling mess. In its place was the old Peter. Coherent, intelligent, inquisitive perhaps. I'm sure this sudden recovery would have been explained away by Ben, however. With no access to alcohol in the care home, of course Peter would have appeared like his old self. Or so Ben would have said, I presume. A month after changing his will to remove the two-year clause and to increase the amount of cash Ben would receive upon his death, Peter died. His body was found by his cleaner on Monday the 26th of October in 2015. In front of him was a nearly empty bottle of whiskey. The emergency services were called and an autopsy performed, but ultimately the coroner ruled his death the result of alcohol intoxication. But of course this wasn't the case, was it? Although we don't know for sure, it's likely that Ben drugged Peter on the evening of Sunday the 25th of October, before forcing alcohol down his throat and finally suffocating him. And sadly, even drugged out of his mind, when the end came, I'm sure Peter would have had a moment of realisation, where the penny finally dropped and he realised what Ben had been up to all along. The man he had loved was now betraying him in the worst way imaginable. Of course, it didn't matter what the real truth was. That was something only Ben and Peter knew, and one of them was dead now. Ben's secret was safe. He'd spent months, if not years, carefully constructing the narrative that Peter was an alcoholic. And indeed, when friends learned of his death, they weren't surprised. On some level, they knew this day would come. Based on everything Ben had been telling them, it was surely just a matter of time. In the months that followed Peter's death, Ben struck a deal with the Farquhar family to sell Peter's house and to give them half of the proceeds. Not necessarily the act of a duplicitous, greedy, murderous bastard. But actually the will was more complex than I have so far alluded to. Rather than leave the house to Ben, it stipulated that he could live there rent-free for the rest of his life, but that it would ultimately belong to members of the Farquhar family and be held in trust for them. So I'm guessing that Ben couldn't influence Peter that much, or maybe he thought it would look too suspicious if Peter left him everything. Either way, a deal was struck, and Ben received half of the proceeds of the sale of the house, £142,000, as well as £20,000 in cash, and that was in July of 2016. Ben had gotten away with his callous crime, and he was now free of Peter and free to spend his ill-gotten gains. And if he'd stopped here, we wouldn't be talking about him now. He wouldn't have been caught. Peter would have continued to have been regarded as a sad alcoholic and Ben would maybe have moved on from his evil ways. Perhaps he would have gone on to become a vicar, marrying unsuspecting couples in Buckinghamshire, burying the dead, burying his awful secret. But he didn't stop there, did he? It had been all too easy with Peter. Matched and dispatched with no consequences, £162,000 richer for his time. There was no way Ben was going to give up on his murderous MO now. Okay, let's take a final break here before we go on to learn about the further crimes of Ben Field. So, we left Ben in the summer of 2016, nine months on from Peter's death, and grand richer. And also with his sights set on continuing on his path of murder and mayhem. 
Ben's next target was Anne Moore Martin, a neighbour of Peter's who was in her early 80s. He'd met her just four months before Peter's death. She lived three doors down from Peter, and it was he who had introduced them. Ben was instantly struck by Anne's enchanting demeanour. She wasn't your typical 80-year-old. A model in her younger years, she still had it. She was blonde and glamorous, with curves in all the right places. Oh Jesus, I just can't help myself from saying that. Anyway, the point is, she was attractive for her age and intelligent too. Following her career as a model, she had followed a similar path to Peter, becoming a teacher and then later a head teacher. Anne had owned her home in Maidsmorton for many years, initially looking after her mother there and then living there alone from 2003 after her mother had died. She was a cancer survivor, a spinster and she had a very strong faith. She was a regular churchgoer, and although she suffered from two brain conditions, her intellectual powers were still good for her age. She treated her niece, Anne-Marie Blake, as a daughter, and in 2011, she had drawn up a will leaving her everything, including her house. Anne was loving, kind and affectionate, but by the time she met Ben in 2015, she was also lonely. And Ben saw this. He saw through her enchanting demeanour right into her soul and he could see how she craved affection and companionship. And he seized on this and he set about taking full advantage. In the months prior to Peter's death, Ben began to seduce Anne. He sent her romantic notes and cards, he bought her gifts and he even encouraged her to watch a film that portrayed a romantic relationship between an older woman and a much younger man. He also began researching sex with the elderly online and a month after Peter's death, presumably taking advantage of Anne's grief, he began a sexual relationship with her. Over the following months, Ben engineered breakups and makeups, writing love letters that extolled his enjoyment of sharing her home. Oh yeah, he'd pretty much moved in with her at this point. In May 2016, Ben persuaded Anne to give him £4,400 in order to help him purchase a new car. He didn't buy a new car with this money, I'm not sure what he did with it, but he did deceive Anne by hiring a car for the day, which he then passed off as his own. Two months later in July, Ben gave Anne a large photograph of himself with the words, I am always with you, imprinted on the frame. And although he didn't follow the Catholic faith, he began to attend mass with Anne. The following month, whilst Anne was engaged in a sex act on him, Ben took photographs of her without her knowledge presumably with the intention of blackmailing her at some point in the future, should the need arise. In August, Ben persuaded Anne to transfer the sum of £26,700 to him by saying that his brother had kidney failure and needed to purchase a dialysis machine urgently. He even supervised Anne's visit to the bank, ensuring she wouldn't have to deal with any awkward questions on her own. And in the most disturbing twist in his greedy pursuit of Anne's money, Ben took advantage of her strong faith by writing messages on mirrors around her house, telling her they were messages from God and that he could see them too. A sample is as follows. All that you give him, he will return tenfold. Your intentions are holy. Your work is not yet done. Take care and complete the task given to you by the Lord. Pray for Ben. Ben loves you. And finally, such poetic prose here. Leave the house to Ben. Do not leave it to Anne-Marie. 
a little more obvious there perhaps. Maybe he was running out of patience at this point. Having clearly grown in confidence, Ben asked Anne to change her will on the 20th of October in 2016, requesting that she leave her house to him rather than her niece Anne-Marie. This was just one year after he'd murdered Peter. It should have been so simple from here. Ben had already manipulated Anne into falling in love with him. She was in the process of changing her will to leave him her house. All he had to do now was bring about her demise. After all, she was a woman in her 80s. Suspicion wasn't likely to be roused if she died. But this time, Ben's plan backfired. Anne instructed a solicitor named Diana Davis to change her will. The same solicitor who had dealt with Peter Farquhar's will. Diana recognised Ben's name and realised that he had recently benefited from a late change to Peter's will. Could it really just be a coincidence that this young man was named in the wills as a major beneficiary of two residents of Maids Morton? Diana Davis smelled a rat and she visited Anne and whilst not disclosing this legally privileged information to her, she ultimately managed to persuade her not to change her will at this point. Anne Moore Martin won, Benfield nil. Diana sought advice on how she could bring this information to Anne's attention. She couldn't disclose it without Ben's permission, but there was nothing to stop her from asking him for his consent. After all, as a legal professional, Diana Davis had a duty of care to protect her clients. How could Ben say no to her request? If he refused, it would look suspicious, like he had something to hide. Consequently, she took the risk and asked him if she could tell Anne that he had been named as a beneficiary in Peter's will. Ben felt that he had no choice but to agree to Diana's request and she duly informed Anne. In response to this, however, and to alleviate any suspicions that Anne may have had of him, Ben ramped up his gaslighting campaign, scrawling more and more messages on mirrors around her house, purportedly from God, and showering her with love notes and gifts. And it worked. On the 22nd of December, Anne changed her will in favour of Ben, although she later admitted that she'd been reticent to do so, but had felt compelled. A couple of months later, in February 2017, surprise, surprise, Anne fell ill at home and was admitted to hospital. She later admitted that she had started to fear for her sanity, and she also confided in a close friend that Ben had been giving her white powder in order to help her sleep at night. Shortly after being admitted to hospital, Anne's niece and her husband confronted Ben with Anne's allegations, and also with their suspicions, and they asked him to leave her home. They also alerted the authorities, and so too did Diana Davis, the solicitor who had become suspicious of Ben. Very sadly, Anne never recovered, and she died in a care home three months after initially being admitted to hospital in February 2017. Fortunately, she did manage to change her will to exclude Ben before she died. Her death came less than a year after she'd first met Ben. And it is, of course, likely that she died as a result of his actions, but at least he didn't get his hands on her money. And really, in meeting Anne Moore Martin, a chain of events began that would ultimately bring about his downfall. Detectives from Thames Valley's Major Crimes Unit began an investigation into both Peter and Anne's deaths in the summer of 2017, shortly after Anne had died. Detectives interviewed friends and family of both Anne and Peter and started to build a case against Ben Field. 
Now, there are two other characters who play a supporting role in this story, who I have as of yet failed to mention. They are Ben's friend, Martin Smith, a magician who was a fellow student at Buckingham University, and Tom Field, Ben's younger brother. Both Tom and Martin were on the scene around the time of Ben's crimes. Indeed, Martin had lived with Ben and Peter at Peter's home for some time, and he was actually living with a 100-year-old woman named Elizabeth Zettel around the time of Anne Moore Martin's death. He was also later found to be in possession of a copy of her will. I'm being really careful what I say here for reasons that will soon become clear. In January 2018, Ben, his brother Tom and his friend Martin were all arrested in dawn raids. All three were arrested for fraud and both Ben and Martin were arrested in connection with the deaths of Peter and Anne. Questioned over a period of 72 hours, they were eventually released without charge. It was clear officers needed more evidence in order to charge them. Arresting them at this stage was a purely tactical move, which had enabled the police to enact search warrants, giving them access to a wealth of evidence. But it would take a long time to sift through all of that evidence and bring charges that would stick. Over the following year, a crack team of detectives ploughed through mobile phones belonging to all three men, they scoured thousands of emails, and they took over 800 statements. They even exhumed Peter's body. This was a thorough and prolonged investigation. Ben had documented every stage of his cruel plot, writing diary entries such as 2015 and Peter. On his phone there were videos of him taunting Peter and also pictures of messages that he had scribbled on the mirrors of Anne's home. The diary entries revealed that Ben had poisoned Peter with psychoactive drugs including diclazepam, but the police needed forensic evidence, so it was at this point that they asked if they could exhume Peter's body. Peter's brother Ian said, We thought about it long and hard, but we wanted answers, so we agreed. He said, They did it really quietly at night. It was like something out of an old horror movie. A second post-mortem was duly carried out and tests revealed that Ben had indeed poisoned Peter before giving him a fatal dose of alcohol and then smothering him. What's more, when the pathologist examined Peter's liver, there was no sign of prolonged alcohol abuse, as had been claimed by Ben. Peter's liver was perfectly healthy for his age. This was the breakthrough they needed. In November 2018, Ben Field and Martin Smith were both charged with murder and conspiracy to defraud. Ben's brother Tom was charged with one count of fraud. The case was heard the following year at Oxford Crown Court and such was the wealth of evidence that the trial lasted for three long months, during which time further disturbing evidence came to light. In a notebook found in Ben's parents' home, where he'd been living since his earlier arrest, officers found a list of a 100 people who they believed Ben had intended on targeting. This list included his own parents and grandparents. It was also revealed that Ben had been targeting other elderly residents of Buckinghamshire. He even persuaded one woman to change her will before taking her to the top of a cliff in Dorset. He didn't throw her off, but he was clearly thinking about it. Perhaps this had been a dry run or he'd had second thoughts. Who knows? It showed him as the wicked man he was though. 
During his trial, two doctors' reports were commissioned into Ben's mental health. They concluded that he was a psychopath with narcissistic personality disorder. They said he was incapable of feeling empathy, and these two conditions had really been his armour. They had enabled him to carry out his twisted and cruel plot. After more than three weeks of deliberation, there was a lot of evidence. The jury found Ben guilty of Peter's murder, and also guilty of defrauding him and Anne Moore Martin. He was found not guilty of Anne's murder, and Martin Smith and Ben's brother Tom were acquitted of all charges. I'm saying nothing. Ben was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 36 years, which is pretty hefty. Um, So I've definitely simplified some of the details of the investigation. As I said, it was thorough and prolonged, and if I'd gone into all of the details, we'd probably be here until Christmas. But if you're in the UK and you want to know more, then check out an excellent documentary called Catching a Killer, A Diary from the Grave. It's on all four, the Channel 4 On Demand service, and it's really worth watching. They've not um, paid me to say any of that. Um, I was absolutely gripped by it, though, and um, it was really inspirational. I came away wishing I'd joined the police and had a career as a detective, um, but I didn't. I went into banking and worked for some truly awful people along the way. Um, But yeah, do check it out if you want to know more about the investigation. There just happened to be a camera crew following Thames Valley Police's major crimes unit at the time that the initial calls came in from Diana Davis, the solicitor, and from Anne-Marie Blake, uh, Anne Moore Martin's niece. So it's kind of, um, it follows the investigation from the very beginning right through to the end, and it's fascinating. So yeah, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It was great police work. Okay, guys, well, until next week, I will uh, will see you then. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.